0: Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. As some of you may have known, this is aspirationally at least a monthly podcast uh, where we review and discuss um, a famous or lesser-known chess book and try to impart some lessons from the book and give listeners a sense of whether a book is worth their time investment or maybe give them a chance to reminisce about a book. And this month, we're actually going to have two books for the price of one, um, which is why there was no episode last last month, as we will discuss. Um, So we're going to be talking about the book Attacking the Strong Point by Grandmaster Igor Zaitsev and Secrets of Practical Chess by Grandmaster John Nunn, my guest co-host for this Podcast is someone I think familiar to a lot of listeners. I am always happy to have him on. He is a renowned cognitive scientist. So, cognitive scientist season on perpetual chess will be coming to a close. Um, He is also a well known author, uh, chess master, best known for co authoring the book, The Invisible Gorilla. He's been on the podcast on episodes 85 and 187 as a guest and was a guest co host for a prior book. Recap Kotov's "Think Like a Grandmaster," and now I am excited to welcome him back, Christopher Shabri, What is new, sir?
1: <laughs> well, maybe the fourth time will be the charm.
0: <laughs> I think every time's been a charm. So <laughs> you keep happy. having me
1: back, so I guess it can't be that it can't be that bad since you keep having me back.
0: Yes, I'm definitely happy to have you back, even <laughs> though I do have to throw you under the bus for uh, for why this is late, why we didn't have one last month. So let's dig into that story. What happened, Chris?
1: Well, I when you first announced
0: this podcast
1: idea, I thought, "Oh, this is great!" He wants co-hosts now. I can finally be on again, and and be on more than once and talk about chess books. And uh, obviously, the first bunch of episodes were all about famous books like Tal and Kotov and Silman, and and so on. And then I saw some ad for this this Zaitsev book, and I thought, "Zaitsev, wow, that's I didn't know he wrote a book. I didn't know he ever wrote anything." Even resembling a book, and it turned out he hadn't. This is his first book at the age of I don't know what seventy-five, eighty, or something like that. Um, but I, I saw that, that it had a forward by Karpov and a forward by Kasparov and a forward by Dvoretsky, and I thought, how could you get three people to write a forward? And they're the two, you know, two world champions and the greatest trainer ever. This, how can this be bad? Like this has got to become a modern classic or something like that. So I thought I would, you know, try to convince you to do a book that just came out instead of one that came out, you know, ten or fifty or hundred years ago. So. Uh, but you know, once you start reading the book, then it turns out it might not be everybody's cup of tea. It might not, might not necessarily be a classic. And it's a little, a little different from some of the other books that you might've been discussing. So I guess you can pick up the story from there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, Igor Zaitsev, as you say, a legendary trainer and So it turns out this book was originally published in Russian, I believe, in 2004. Um, And what happened was Russell Enterprises finally brought it to the English-speaking world in 2020. So it wasn't brand new. And actually what it primarily is, as far as um, I've been able to determine, is a collection of essays of Grandmaster Zaitsev. He's um, obviously been well known as a player and a trainer over the years. He was the second to uh, world champion Anatoly Karpov for decades. Um, and he's contributed to various Russian periodicals. And this um, this book is sort of a compilation of what he's written. Um, so, as you say, it sounded great to me, and I actually I wouldn't even rule out uh, reviewing a new book again in the future. But it did just turn out to this with this one, I have to say, that as as you know, I'm always always sort of feel like I'm on deadline with uh, reading these books. And this was the first one where I wasn't looking forward to, reading it that much when the time came and i have to say i i feel bad even saying that because the guy is a total legend he's he's obviously a genius in chess and i commend the publishers for for bringing this book out and making it available and there there is some great material in there um but for me uh this book um it it had a has a very sort of dense and ornate writing style um uh grandmaster zaitsev has like a philosophical bent pretty clearly um also since it was translated from russian we don't know um how how light a touch the translator had you could say we don't know to what extent um any um density in the prose could be attributed to the translator as composed to the as compared to the writer but in any event once the the book um start it started to to be clear to me at least, that it wasn't a book I wanted to unequivocally recommend, then we decided to add another book. So Chris, could you tell us a little bit about the other book? And then of course, we will be discussing them both here uh, this evening or whenever you guys listen.
1: Yeah. So we were chatting about what other book to 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 work in. And it occurred to me that the subtitle of Zaitsev's book is The Philosophy of Chess. And it really is kind of a philosophical book, I think. And, and that's kind of what makes it so weird in a sense for practicing chess players and improving chess players and, and chess players of all kinds to, to look at because we don't read much philosophy of chess. But then when I thought what what book would go well with this, it really is a modern classic that I've been hoping to discuss at some point. It was Secrets of Practical Chess by John Nunn, which is practical chess, the opposite maybe of chess philosophy, or at least potentially the opposite of it, or a complement to it. And I think also John Nunn is very well known as a chess author, as well as a competitive player. Um, whereas Zaitsev is known mainly as a trainer and as an opening analyst. So they almost have sort of mirror image chess reputations as well. I didn't even know Zaitsev had ever written anything until this this came out. Whereas Nunn's books are all over the place. You can find them in Barnes & Noble even, uh, in bookstores. Uh, and I think Secrets of Practical Chess by John Nunn is one of the most underrated books it's not that people don't like it. It's just that they never mention it. And it has been mentioned a few times on Perpetual Chess, but it's, it's sort of, um, I think like pound for pound, it's one of the most valuable and useful books ever written. I think it's you know overdue to be discussed.
0: Yeah. It, I, and I was happy when you suggested it because it is, a, it had been an omission in my catalog of books that I'd read. Um, it certainly it's been recommended a few times on the podcast by yourself among others. And, uh, when uh when Fred Wilson um interviewed Mark Dvoretsky, it's an interview that you can find on the Perpetual Chess feed. Mark Dvoretsky himself actually recommended Secrets of Practical Chess. Uh, this book was originally published, I believe, in 1998, and um was has subsequently been updated. But so it was during Dvoretsky's life, and pro- um he was able to recommend it. Uh, none other than. One of the other most esteemed trainers of all time, Grandmaster Jakob Agard, has also called it one of the top ten books of the 20th century. So certainly, when people praise it, um, they they there are those who know speak very highly of it, and I can certainly see why, having read it. Um, so we'll get to both books, but I think we should start with attacking the strong point because there there is some fun stuff in there. Um, so. Uh why don't we start by defining the title? I I love the title. That's one thing I'll say for the book. So so Chris, um could you give a little more context about that? I can try. I mean, I have to say that as you
1: mentioned, Zaitsev's writing turned out to be a little harder to penetrate than I than I had hoped based on the beautiful cover of the book and his reputation and so on. Um So, uh, there's a whole chat. One of the chapters of the book is, is called attacking the strong point. It's kind of one of those books that takes its title from one of the chapters that's, that's inside it. So you can tell it's like a book of essays or like a, you know, like books of short stories do that. So the whole book is not about attacking the strong point, but that is sort of the, I think the one of the most striking things he writes about in the book. And I, in order to try to understand that I did, um, type up a couple of quotes, um, and the first thing he says about it, and I'll go through these a, a couple in a row, I guess, um, the first thing he says about it is study shows us that in practically every game, one side resorts directly, whether in the actual game or in calculations, to exploiting a very common strategic element, attacking the strong point. And um, right away, he's saying something that I don't really understand because I've never heard of this concept before. <laughs> and, and also he says in practically every game, this happens, right? So it's, it's been lying under our noses and like every game. And in fact, I've been doing it even because in practically every game, one side resorts to this. So already he's sort of like trying to you know you know invert our image of chess or like tell us there's been something going on that we don't really haven't even really understood and um, I think we can we can ask people or once you read the book you can ask how much of this is really new or how much of it is sort of a different vocabulary for familiar ideas or something but here's here's what I think here I'll, I'll tell you what I think he means by by the strong point so a point is any square on the board occupied by pawn structure or any square which pawn structure may occupy in one move. So points are sort of like the the places where pawns are or the places where they can get to. And the strong point is a point of special strategic significance that are under the control of more than one piece. So a strong point is like a square that you're like defending with two or three pieces. And you sort of, I think the reason why it's an interesting point is that this fact sort of causes you to not think that the other guy can go there. (laughs) It's like a heavily defended place that you don't expect to be occupied by a piece. So when when there's like an interference sacrifice, you know, where you like put a piece, you know, like on a diagonal and a file at the same time, and it has to cut one of them off, and it's a beautiful combination. That I think is an example of occupying the strong point. It's like a place the opponent seemingly has under control, but surprisingly, putting something of your own there actually changes the game significantly. So I think that's kind of the way I would I would describe it, um, which. If I'm if I'm correct, seems really interesting. But does it happen in every single game? I'm still yeah, not no I'm not so sure about that.
0: Yeah, no, yeah that that part I disagree with it, but I do remember him saying that. But yeah, and that was actually one of my favorite chapters, and that that comes you know maybe forty percent into the book or something like that, um, because the chess there's a lot of language, especially early on in the book, and not as much chess. But that that chapter about attacking the strong point has some striking examples. Of, as you say, it will be a position where, like, you know, um, the, from the, the Nimzovichian school of overprotecting a square, a certain critical, like a d5 pawn break or something, might be protected three times. But then he finds these positions where you play the move and all three captures fail to some tactical um, trick. So that kind of tactic is generally very striking. But as you say, certainly not common in my games. Or or if those tactics do present themselves, then then I must be missing them. Um, so I, I enjoyed that chapter. He also late in the book, and this also sort of um, speaks to it being a collection of essays. Late in the book, there's a sort of biographical chapter about his time as uh, as one of Karpov's seconds. Um, I mean, like the lead second, I guess you could say. Um, he says, I had a 20-year period of working as the chief second in seven world championship finals, and that's not even counting 12 candidates matches and Olympiads and et cetera, et cetera. So to me, as a chess his, history enthusiast, that's kind of like, that's kind of what I want to read about most, even though he is, he was, as you say, a renowned opening theoretician, but, you know, in the age of the engine. Oh, and uh, listeners, of course, you may recommend, recognize his name from the Zaitsev variation of uh of the Roy Lopez, and his name pops up in a few other openings. Um, but in in any event, the the book is uneven. I guess you could say. I yeah, I
1: guess I guess it's uneven, or it's or or, or it's even, and just the 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 stuff that it's even with is 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 kind of hard to penetrate. Um, you know, as you said, it's sort of written in a little bit of that Soviet style, um, but I think it's also written in sort of this. It's it's a, it's a hard to describe voice, but it's a it's a it's a voice which is a little bit abstract, and so he's often talking about relatively abstract things. He redefines common terms, like he makes a distinction between tactics and combinations, which I didn't quite understand. Combinations alter the pawn structure; tactics involve pieces. I've never heard of that way of distinguishing them before. Um so it's it's something you really I think have to immerse yourself in but I think uh, in Dvoretsky's forward one of the many forwards in this book in Dvoretsky's forward um he he put his finger maybe on what it's really useful for um and let me see if I can find the let me see if I can find the quote I wrote down a quote from it he said Dvoretsky said I have a special folder in which I have kept Zaitsev's articles whenever one of my students needs to work on developing fantasy and creative imagination and a concrete unbiased approach to a position he will have access to that folder. It's like the classic, like Dvoretsky, like secret stash, you know, you imagine like there's there's like a, he pushes the bookcase in, you know, and the bookcase slides in, you know, and then there's this room with the Zaitsev articles and, you know, his, his database of chess positions. And I think he sort of makes the point that it's sort of one of those things, this book, which is a collection of articles, it makes you think differently. Um, And maybe that's just a good spur to imagination and creativity. If you're sort of getting bored with your game or, you know, chess is not that exciting anymore, or you feel like you've been reading a lot of similar stuff, you know, with same kinds of books and so on, read this and you'll be reading something different and it'll be really interesting. I think it is not the only book like that, but I think it's one of, it's one of the more recent ones. It's not like full of engine lines, you know, and, and just evaluations and so on. It's, it's got all kinds of concepts in it. Um, and it's kind of interesting to me that it's from a guy who was known mostly for opening novelties there are so many important opening novelties that he played, or sorry, that he discovered, often which were played by Karpov or someone like that, that um, are now sort of main lines, you know, or have been, you know, become part of like what many, many great players and and ordinary players have played. So it's kind of surprising to see such a philosophical abstract work from someone you would think would be all about concrete (laughs) opening analysis or something.
0: Yeah. Although they do describe like, some of those sort of what you what I always pictured as and you know this this book does nothing to disabuse disabuse the sort of picture of uh these old school soviet grandmasters like huddling together for days and studying like various positions and various openings um so before we move on to the next book I want to read a few sample quotes and and leave you guys with a few improvement takeaways but first we're going to take a break and hear from our friends at chessable as always, Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable is a chess learning website that utilizes its Move Trainer technology to help you learn and remember opening lines, tactical patterns, and end games. It is endorsed by GM Magnus Carlsen and features courses from I.M. John Bartholomew, Sam Shanklin wesley so and so many others chessable has over a hundred thousand members and features hundreds of courses both for free and for purchase so if you haven't checked it out yet please go to chessable.com and take a look around back to the interview Okay, and we are back and we are going to continue to discuss uh, Attacking the Strong Point. One thing I should mention uh, to to the book's credit, it is available in uh, Kindle, which is how I read it, and Chris, I believe, read it on Forward Chess. So easy to get, which is always nice and easy to consume in a variety of fashions. Um, ju- for listeners who haven't seen the book, which I think will be a lot of you since it is relatively new to the English language, um, we did want to reflect a little more and give a few sample quotes that I think are not necessarily like the highlights, but just to give you a sense of, uh, of what I mean about the writing style. So here's one quote where he says, what do we really know about this thing called chess? Every time we start thinking about it generally as a philosophical subject, it manages to seduce us right from the start with its entertaining playing side. But it's not just because of this temptation that this whole unchanging world of pure abstractions with its inner laws of which chess is a part remains surprising and mysterious and from the start is only open to human reason. So I don't even I don't know exactly what he said there. I don't don't know about you. you have got a Ph.D. from Harvard, Chris. Maybe you can help me here.
1: That's in psychology, not philosophy, though. (laughs) Okay, psychology broke off from philosophy about 150 years ago. And there's a reason for that. Um, Well, I think that's a great quote to sort of illustrate maybe some of his approach because or at least to illustrate the contrast with with Nunn's book. Um, In a way, because, you know, that's that's all as far as I, I think, like none would say that's all gobbledygook, you know, like it's it's not meaningless or anything like that. But I'm not sure he would even believe in a philosophy of chess. Um, You know, is there a philosophy of chess? Like there might be logic in chess and there's mathematics in chess, certainly. And there's a lot of things in chess. But is there a philosophy or maybe the philosophy comes from the observer? And maybe Zaitsev just has the kind of mind who. Wants to philosophize things and and wants to make everything seem like it has abstract properties and laws when in fact it's sort of a particular mathematical logical construct that just fascinates humans.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's um, (laughs) it's tough to say. Um, And another thing we should mention is, again, even though I'm I'm not a huge fan of the book, it's not like I would unequivocally deter anyone from reading it. it. the The high points are very high on this book. Um, but I should also mention, I feel like it's for fairly advanced players. And I think that's also basically true of, uh, the nun book. I mean, the nun book, I think, um, probably, I think both books, um, are best suited for, for listeners around 1800 on up. Um, and Chris, I don't know if you agree with that. And for anyone listening rated below that next month, we'll be sure to to do a book that, um, is, um, uh, that more players can benefit from but I still think that you guys can can pick up some things from the highlights of the book and uh get a little chess culture. But do you agree with those uh, rating estimates Chris? Yeah, I would say so, maybe even a little higher for maybe even a little higher for the Zaitsev
1: book. Um but it's not, you know, don't get the impression that it's it's just endless, you know, murky prose. It's actually full of examples and variations and so on, much like any other book. There are lengthy sections of prose and then there's sort of some lengthy examples and the examples are really interesting because nowadays we always complain about books when they reprint the classic positions in games, you know, that have been in books for decades or something like that. And we always praise books where we say, oh, the author created a tactics book and you've never seen any of the positions before because they're all from the last two years, side variations that weren't even on the board, you know, so you don't even right. see them. like, you know, that's great, you know, but, but here he goes back to some of like the most classic classics, like the very first game in the book after all these prefaces and so on that sort of have little snippets of Zaitsev's own you know, play and, and ideas and so on. The very first game in the book is uh, um, Steinitz against um, von Bardellobin, which is a famous sacrificial game where Steinitz rips open the king and makes all kinds of sacrifices and so on. And he spends a few pages sort of reanalyzing and figuring out where the mistakes actually were. And in the end, we, we, and that's where he first introduces the strong point concept, although he doesn't talk about it a lot, because in that game, Steinitz starts the winning process by pushing a pawn. He play, He's white, he plays D5, and, and Black can play C takes D5, and so D5 was the strong point. Black thought he had it under control, but by putting his own pawn there, Steinitz opens up the D4 square, he opens up the C file, and he launches this big combinational um, attack. And that's not the only one of these classic games. They're classic end games like Capablanca Tartikauer, which is a famous rook and pawn end game that's been shown many times. And he's reanalyzed that and found new stuff about that. So there's there's a lot of great chess in here. If you even just ignored the philosophy and yeah. you know used it as like a book of, of good examples and new analysis and, and, and so on. I mean, whether that's something of interest to 1,800 players, I don't know. But there, there's a lot of good chess meat in here, even if you don't like the the philosophy part or the sort of his little bit um, idiosyncratic concept.
0: Yeah. And that's actually the camp I was in and I'm often in the opposite. I mean, I generally am a sucker for the the chess pros. I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Jonathan Rowson, as uh, familiar listeners know. Um, and, and I, I enjoy listening to or reading uh authors wax philosophical about chess and, you know, impart advice without necessarily overwhelming you with variations. But in this case, the chess was so fresh that I enjoyed it. And like you, the Capablanca the Tartacauer ending, um, in particular, struck a chord. It's a very famous endgame, so I'd seen it before, but the amount of analysis that he put into it and the fresh perspective he brought, I thought was pretty worthwhile. And just, you know, in sections like that, his his love and obsession for the game really, really shines through. I mean, you can really see. Like again, you get this image of the just day after day studying, trying to get to the the truth of a position, um, which gets to another thing he mentions in the book. And of course, um, uh, Grandmaster John Nunn also has had a, a great interest in chess computers. But um, Zaitsev not so much a fan of uh, chess computers. He said uh, after forty, he's talking about a certain position, and he says after forty five years he's he finally got to look at a position that was 45 years prior I managed to bring up this position on my computer and i was once again amazed at how human play so fundamentally differs from the computer um, which is definitely a theme in uh in John nunn's book as well um even though as you say it's philosophical as opposed to practical
1: yeah it's i guess it, it all relates in some ways also to the question of how to use computers to understand and analyze chess, and just looking at what the engine I think people have a tendency to look at what the engines say is the best move or the top three moves or whatever, and sort of think that anything worse than that is inferior or a mistake or something, but I mean that can change a lot depending on how deeply you search and different engines disagree you know about positions and and so on so it's not like there's some oracle there that's you know that's telling us the telling us the truth and what the engine says is a good move might not be a great practical move right against human beings and engines have a ways to go before they sort of really start I think giving us really good recommendations for human play all the time they still do often right like of course don't don't hang pieces that the engines are going to take you know for no compensation and so on right like um but uh I think maybe sometimes we do still tend to take them a little bit too seriously without thinking too much
0: yeah i think so for sure and i think that's true at at the the elite level at the professional level um but i think a lot of authors lose sight of uh that how, how the extent to which it's way more true at the club level um the extent to which when you know when you play your last book move like the the fact the 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 degree to which the game shifts from a uh sort of mathematical to psychological struggle is uh it's hard to underestimate, but even at the, at the top levels, I mean, um, the, the psychology and the trends of the game play, play a big part.
1: Yeah. And I, not to get ahead of ourselves, but, uh, Nunn's book has a great example of when even a world champion didn't use the engine correctly. I don't know if you remember the one I'm talking about, but I want to mention it when, when, when we get there. So it's not as though all the great players are, you know, have have always been perfect at using computers either.
0: Yeah. Yeah. and, and, uh, you'll have to refresh my memory a little more when we get there. But before we do, Chris, is there anything else um, to you'd like to add about attacking the strong point?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's I think it's really anyone interested in chess history, modern chess history, Russian slash Soviet chess. Um, it's a really good book for anyone like that, even if they're not necessarily interested in improvement. Um I know you sort of have a focus on improvement and so on but I think it it's a great book for anyone interested in chess culture as we as we say because Zaitsev was one of the most important people in like the development of chess theory behind the scenes um all of his best moves in the sense were played by other people yeah <laughs> or at least his most famous moves his his moves that sort of in a way had the most influence on how other people played were were played by other people um and The book is filled with stuff about him as well as by him. So there's that autobiographical essay at the end. There are also these reflections that were, I think, prepared for like a tribute to him when he turned seventy or something like that, um, by a lot of interesting people. There's like two or three different articles by Karpov about him in the book. You know, it's um, so there's all kinds of great stuff in there. Like even if you you know, even again, if the philosophy sort of, uh, you know, turns you off, there's a lot of great stuff in there. And, oh, a selection of his own games appears in the back, sort of just pops up randomly as an appendix, you know, of his mm-hmm. interesting games. So there's it's, there's all kinds of stuff in there. It's a great book for anyone who's interested in like collecting books of important chess stuff, I think.
0: Yeah. And don't forget his poetry, Chris.
1: Well, I I was trying to forget his poetry a little bit I have to say because I I figured I better read the poems before you know before we talk about this book because that's pretty unique aspect of this book so I read the poems and then I, I the poems were the least impressive aspect of the book I guess I, I guess I would say um, yeah
0: again could have been lost in translation but but yeah they didn't they didn't uh, strike me either and and yeah I mean when Karpov sort of um, uh, uh, raves about uh, grandmaster zaitsev he mentions he's a family man a worldly man lots of different interests lover of poetry as he demonstrates and so on and so forth um and and the what you mentioned about um him being him deciding to be a second i did want to share one more quote and by a second we mean he, he was primarily going to assist karpov that uh, there there he describes a point where he decided he's no longer even going to try to compete um, and he says, uh, legendary chess player David Bronstein said to him at the time when he was evaluating the decision, that from this day forward, you will have to be prepared always to be in the shadows. Like the moon, you will only shine by reflected light. So just a very cr- poetic quote from Bronstein to Zaitsev and stuff like that. I, I, as like a Sasanko fan, I can read stuff like that all day. Um, that's a uh, grandmaster, Jenna Sasanko, a well-known author. Um, so... Yes, I could have gone with a little more of that, like less ornate prose, little more just to like straight memories and stories or more chess. But, but the philosophical <laughs> stuff, it, it wasn't for me. But again, still, uh, still I, I agree with you that this place has a book, uh, has a place on the bookshelf for any hardcore chess fans listening.
1: Yeah, I, I I almost wish someone write a whole biography of him, just a whole chess biography. There are more and more biographies of sort of lesser known players coming out these days um, from publishers like, um, I don't know, Elk and Ruby and, and um, people like that. And I, I don't know if you picked this up, but there was one more thing, last thing I wanted to read. Kuzman, a great player, you know, by himself, um, he wrote one of the many tributes in here to Zaitsev. And he said, Igor... Arkadyevich Saitsev is a man of deep beliefs. His faith is something you can feel in his actions and his attitude toward life and in the atmosphere with which he surrounds himself. And that I, already a grown man, saw the need to undergo the baptismal rite is in great part a result of the influence of this unique person. Like he seems like quite a character. He was getting people to convert right, um, yeah. know, as adults or something like that. And meanwhile, he's discovering all the best opening novelties and writing these articles and training and so on. And meanwhile, he's converting. You know he's converting the non-religious or something like that as well. So it seems like quite a character you'd like to know more. You know even more about maybe if you're if you're interested in chess personalities.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. I wonder if he speaks English. I might I might need to try to track him down. I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure he speaks some, but would be a fascinating person to interview. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're going to pivot to primarily discussing secrets of practical chess, but first uh, let's take another break and hear from our friends at Aim Chess. In case you have not heard about our friends and sponsors, AimChess.com, I wanted to tell you a bit about what they offer. Basically what they do is they collect your games, they scrape your games automatically from Chess.com and LeeChess, and then give you data-driven trends and analysis of what you can work on. Your own personalized scouting report, so that if whether it be tactics or converting advantages or certain openings, they point you in the right direction and give you personalized lessons to help clean up your game. So there's a free version that you can check out just to get a taste of what they do. And then if you like it and you choose to subscribe, use the promo code CHESS30 and you can save 30% and they will know that you came from Perpetual Chess. All right, back to the interview. Have a look at aimchess.com. So we are back and we are ready to discuss Secrets of Practical Chess, of course, written by Grandmaster John Nunn, um, like truly likely truly a genius on the IQ scale. He's an Oxford PhD, former top 10 player in the world, British national champion, uh, three-time world champion in chess problem solving, um, prolific and acclaimed author, and one of the founders of Gambit Publishing. So just a remarkably um, impressive guy who I also would like to interview someday, by the way. Um, So Chris, um, obviously John Nunn has so many other well-known books. do you, do you have any other personal favorites? What other um, interactions have you had with his canon? I don't think he's ever
1: written a bad book. Um, So it's, it's hard to, it's hard to even say. I haven't read some of his, he has a beginner's book. I think that I haven't really read. I I sort of try to collect all of his books, weirdly enough. I, if there's an author I like, I try to get all their books. So like and I even bought his Grunfeld defense book, even though I don't read the Grunfeld just because I have this sort of collector's tick of you know, like being a completist on, on some authors. And I haven't gone that far with none, but um, Understanding Chess Move by Move is one of his um, most famous um, books, which is sort of like a modern version of Logical Chess Move by Move and books like that, where he really tries to explain almost all the moves. And But it, they're modern games. They're explained better by a really strong player. It's sort of a you know the, the book you should read instead of Logical Chess Move by Move if you're higher rated than let's say 1600 or something like that. Um, And then he also has um, Secrets of Grandmaster Play, which was the book that I think was really sort of like a breakthrough where um, he deeply analyzed uh, 24, I think, or a very small number of his own games, but basically explained every move and sort of pioneered that approach to his own games. And it's now it's it's. There's a new edition called Secrets of Grandmaster Chess, I think, but Secrets of Grandmaster Play was one of the great books. And even opening books, he he sort of revolutionized opening books in some ways. He wrote this book called Beating the Sicilian, which was one of the first really serious repertoire books. So he gives like a line against every black Sicilian variation. And then he wrote Beating the Sicilian 2 and updated all that and replaced some of the lines when the old ones weren't good. And then he wrote Beating the Sicilian Three, I believe. I mean the guy has just got so many great books, and I haven't even talked about endgames yet, where he's written some of the best um books on end games, and he he has some kind of commitment to the truth, which is even way beyond most other chess authors, I think. Like he was one of the first ones to use table bases to re-examine like all of endgame theory and say, like, what did we get wrong in the past? What did we get right? How can we understand what the table bases are telling us, you know, based on perfect play about how we should practically try to win some of these end games. And he admits when it's too complicated, too. Um, to really understand, like this is, is just an oracle, like you know, white wins in this position, but it's really hard to understand why this is any different from some other position um, where white draws. You know, so it, you, you can't really say enough about his his contributions to chess literature, and it's especially striking since he was such a great competitive player too. He wasn't, you know, wasn't while he's still alive. Why are we talking in the past tense? You know, he, yeah. you know, it, it, when he played a lot, right? He was really one of the best players in the world for a while, as well as one of the greatest authors and, and editors now.
0: Yeah, and again, for being such a such a strong player and such a brilliant mind, you, you don't a- automatically assume that they're going to do a good job explaining um, these esoteric chess concepts to um, to more rank and file type players. But somehow he pulls it off. So super impressive. Um, yeah, the beating Sicilian books were were quite formative for me. I've actually I, I need to. There are a few books of his that I have not read yet that are. Still glaring omissions, but at least I got this one checked off. I want, to um, say, I want to say one other thing, sorry to interrupt, but he's also gone back and sort of like
1: fixed old books. Um, and I'm not sure he gets enough credit for this, but if you buy uh, like Paul Carey's greatest games collection um, for Batsford, I think, maybe not for Gambit, for, but for Batsford when he was still involved with Batsford publishers, he fixed all the mistakes in... Um, Carrie's greatest games and then added some games from the end of Carrie's career that Carrie's never like actually put in his own collection or something like that. So he goes back to older books and, and makes them better. And he goes back to his old, his own books and makes them better. So we read the new enlarged edition of secrets of practical chess that came out 10 years after the first one. So it's now like, I think one of the best books of the 21st century, as well as the 20th century. Um, I hope it gets another chance to revise it, you know, uh, and make a third edition that's even better or something. But for now, the second one is still is still great.
0: Yeah, the second one is great. Although that does bring up a point that I was going to mention when we talk about his computer chapter is that could definitely use some updating. Um, through no fault of his own, it's just if you write a computer chapter, I think I think the update came in a, like a, I, I'm not sure about the exact year. I want to say 2006 to 2008 somewhere in that range, um, and yeah, computers have changed a lot since then. It's funny how he counts up the number of people who are
1: playing on ICC or Yahoo chess or something. Yeah, chess play, yeah. (laughs) Great online chess is going in 2008, and now the numbers are like 100 times that or something, or 50 or 100 times that on Lee Chess or whatever.
0: Yeah, and of course, they're different sites as well. So it's it's a wide ranging book as well. It has five chapters or five sections, I guess you could say, with chapters within them, too many chapters to name. But this, there's a section about at the board, the opening, the middle game, the end game and using a computer. Um, and because the book is so sort of broad in scope, it's hard to even know where to begin. Um, so Chris, as someone who's read this book multiple times, do you, is is there something you think of first when you think about this book?
1: Yeah, this is my third time reading it. Actually, I read the first edition, and then I I, re- I I read the second edition. This may even be my fourth time. I don't know. It's 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 the kind of book that I really feel like you should read every couple of years or something. Um, I'll try to explain why at some point. But I think the first chapter is is great. So at the board is sort of the most practical part of it. The book's called Secrets of Practical Chess. What could be more practical than what you do at the board during the game? And incidentally, he really means a board. Like almost a lot of his advice does have to do with sort of slow time control, classical tournament games, rapid and online, you know, was not as big a deal back in 2008 and 1998. So a lot of it um, has to do with psychological considerations at the board and and just sort of descriptions of, of thinking patterns and thinking problems that people have. Um it's not an overtly psychological book like he doesn't talk about psychological research he doesn't it's very practical like it's 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 extremely um practical he'll say like in my experience the reasons why people get into time pressure are a b and c and and here's what i suggest you do about a b and c and it's incredibly pithy and uh and 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 valuable so um uh that's the first place to start i think is it's so much good advice in there and and um two good acronyms too. Should we talk about the acronyms? Cause they make it uh, easy to remember a couple of the.
0: Yeah. The- yeah. And the, yeah, those are definitely, I think, touchstones for people who've read the book, particularly LPDO, which certainly has come up on the podcast in, in the past, um, which stands for loose pieces drop off, which is just a nice little heuristic for when you're blunder checking or looking for a tactic. But that was a uh, Jonathan Ralston quotes it in one of his books but he, he attributes none who in turn attributes someone else as having originally said it but it's it's certainly entered the canon in terms of um how uh, how chess players uh, talk or entered the language I should say
1: yeah it's um uh, you know unprotected pieces are what none would call a tactical weakness right that's a phrase i think that we also see more of nowadays tactical weakness Whereas in the past, weaknesses were sort of thought of as strategic. But now we know that there are tactical weaknesses. And he gives a few others besides undefended pieces. But undefended pieces even show up as causes of losing games by world champions. So he gives a nice famous example of um, Karpov, who left two pieces undefended, um, a bishop and a knight, and Larry Christensen noticed that he could fork them with, with a queen move and just win a piece from Karpov on move 12. Um, And and then in in Viconze, like uh, a month ago or something like that, two months ago, um, Esipenko, I believe, beat Carlson in a a celebrated game. And that was because Carlson had a rook on H8 undefended in the Sicilian. And it was exposed on the long diagonal. And Esipenko played a little tactic in the center and played some move like queen C3 forking or could have played queen C3 forking a knight on C6 and a rook on H8 and wound up winning a pawn or two instead of a, a whole piece. So this is not like beginner stuff. Like these are the elements of, combinations and tactics and calculation, you know, that, that even strong players can occasionally miss. So it's, it's, he really draws our attention to like the most fundamentally important things in this book. I think that's why you should reread it every so often. It's like reminding you of like the basics and the things that you might not think about enough, you know, the, the really most important things to know and to think about at the board.
0: Yeah, it's good stuff. And it always makes me feel good to see world champions blundering pieces, just, <laughs> just like me. Um, and the other acronym that you mentioned, or at least the one that I thought of, is uh, D-A-U-T. Is that, uh, is that the one you were referring to? Yes, which stands
1: for Don't Analyze Unnecessary Tactics, um, which I thought was interesting because Nunn's books always seem to me to, he has very pithy explanations, but he also doesn't shy away from giving you lots of variations. And even there are some passages in this book where, where he does too, although there's usually a reason to do it, not just to sort of show off how, how deeply he analyzed, uh, but he advises in practice Like all those variations are for like after the game, like when you're trying to understand the game after it's over in practice at the board, don't calculate more deeply than you have to or don't look at variations you don't have to. Like if you find a good solution that doesn't involve like uh, risky, complicated tactics where, you know, one mistake in your calculation could completely flip the evaluation of the position, but you see a simpler, straightforward, less risky way to, to win or to get an advantage at least. You know, go for that. Don't analyze unnecessary tactics where you run the risk of being wrong.
0: Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it when he said it, and he he had some good examples. But it's it's for me, it's not going to resonate the same way LPDO does. It's not it's not going to be quite the same touchstone. But but one thing that I think will be is um his his discussion of uh, Grandmaster Kotov's tree of analysis, which of course, uh, having been the person who recap Think Like a Grandmaster with me, you are you are well familiar with. Um, so for listeners who didn't hear our prior podcast discussing that classic book um, or are not familiar with this book, basically uh, Grandmaster Kotov, Alexander Kotov, uh, has this famous idea that the way you should analyze a game is by looking at one move and then from that move look at what he calls branches on the tree and exhaust that move. And uh, Nunn pushes back against that. I mean, many people in subsequent decades have pushed back against this idea, but I felt that Nunn's arguments were uh were particularly compelling. Almost everyone
1: has pushed back against that idea since Kotov wrote it. It's almost as though he wrote it, you know, in order to start a conversation and get everybody to realize that it couldn't possibly be right, unless you're stockfish. Right. You know, and then you can implement, you know, Kotov's, you know, uh, tree of analysis, like in the way it was maybe maybe intended. But none, yeah, none makes a lot of good points. And one of the most important ones, I think, is um, often you don't figure out what the right candidate moves are in a position until you've started analyzing one or two of the moves. And then suddenly you realize that, you know, oh, if only my knight were over here instead in this variation, like then he couldn't defend this way, you know? So then you start looking, oh, what if I put the knight there first, you know, and you sort of, you you, you don't, you have to go back and forth, you know, in some way, you know, between these different branches, because you'll learn something from one branch that then makes the other branch look different. And of course this can get us into like a never ending, you know, Cycle. So, um, fortunately, Nunn has some practical advice for for how not to just spend forever for, forever analyzing. But um, he does open up with the criticism of, of Kotov and sort of it, it, if you if you look if you read the book, like it, the whole book is not like that. Like he spends like five pages on Kotov, but then he gets into like all the you know consequences of that and uh, positive tips you know for your for your own play
0: yeah he, he calls what you're referring to the synergistic effect of calculating different variations and he also raises the point that if you're just doing one variation you could spend 15 minutes on it and maybe it looks like maybe it leads to a slight edge or something you finally decide and then you look at the next variation and it turns out it wins by force i mean or it gives you a big edge maybe um so, in that case, you've wasted fifteen minutes, um, as he points out, although win by force would be a bad example because you'd be happy to just have to win. But if it's a clear clearly a bigger advantage then uh, then it's it's not time well spent. So, as an alternative, he recommends kind of just spending a minute or two on on what you think are the most likely variations first um before you uh, you go deeper. And of course, this also this mere conversation, as Chris mentioned earlier, shows that this is really similar to um, to when I was discussing the Jonathan Rowson uh, book with David Franklin, um, it's a, a lot of it is about tournament chess. Um, it's there are there isn't that much overlap with uh, with the online variants.
1: Yeah, he he says um, he says I've observed that I'm, I'm not quoting exactly. I'm quoting from memory something like I've, I've observed that when a player spends more than 20 minutes on a move, he usually almost always makes a mistake you know, and of course, if you're playing, you know, online rapid, and you spend 20 minutes on a move, you just lost the game. So that's definitely a mistake and an online rapid. But even as right. it's sort of like long think, wrong think, long analysis, wrong analysis. Um, I don't know if he's right about that. But the fact that he thinks it's true, um, I think is, is is very relevant for us. And so I guess, um, you know, his advice to combat that in part is, like you said, look at, you know, think of some candidate moves and look at them sort of briefly and see if you can figure out any like big problems or big, you know, six good things, big, good things or bad things about any of them. And then go deeper. If you know you sort of didn't resolve things, you know, clearly at the, at the first, you know, at the first stage.
0: Um, Yeah. And that, that, uh, that advice that he gave, like it, um, it it echoed with an early interview I did on this podcast with uh, Sam Shanklin. So I don't know if if Sam, I mean, Sam being brilliant player and well-read player that he is probably read this book. So I don't know if it was a conscious thing, but I remember asking Sam Shanklin about like long thinking and him giving basically that exact advice um, about thinking long, thinking wrong and about um, saying there are often variations where you kind of know what you're going to play so like you're you're just determined to make it work, so he said, "Just play it, you know, and uh, there were definitely echoes in the advice that shanklin gave in in what Nunn wrote yeah i i I think
1: sometimes the I'm not going to say it's a problem with this book because it's hard to give like really great advice that's reducible to words. there's just something ineffable about becoming good at chess calculation and chess analysis and chess judgment that you can't just get into a formula written in words, but you know, knowing when you're done analyzing a move is is hard. Knowing when you're fighting your intuition is hard, and it, it's. I think it's an interesting piece of advice to say. Like, if you really, really want to play a move, don't waste 20 minutes just trying to convince yourself that it's the right move because you're probably going to play it anyway. Right. I, I wouldn't have thought of that. It almost seem i I almost can't imagine myself putting that advice into practice. It just somehow seems wrong to not calculate, you know, the variations and so on. But if I guess if it's the only move you can think of and you don't have that much time, just go ahead and play it, right? And maybe that would help cure me of some time pressure if I would just sort of try to trust my intuition more or somehow realize that I need that time later in the game, you know? Like, yeah. I'm not going to win the game right now in the next three moves. I'm going I'm to need to make another 20 moves in order to win this game, you know? So I really shouldn't think that long. It's, it's the inevitable struggle, right, of time pressure and how long to think.
0: Yeah, and of course with this topic having come up periodically on, on the podcast and in, in other book discussions, um, the advice that he gives about time trouble is is very practical and very good, but it, it didn't strike me as wholly new. And of course it doesn't like solve the problem that it's based on a feeling of indecision and that if you determine a move, um, you know, the, the, that you're likely debating two moves that would have a very small sort of quantitative difference based on like the engine analysis, then you should just play one. Like, you know, that's, that's all fine and good, <laughs> but it's still hard when you're actually playing the game to remember those things. But nonetheless, the more you can drill it into your head, the better, I suppose. I, I think,
1: um like I, I started, I, I when I was rereading this for this conversation, I saw so many of these good tips here that I really wanted to make up like a one page, cheat sheet, not to actually cheat because you're not allowed to have notes at the board or during the game or, or whatever, but to try to like refresh my memory of before a game like maybe there are for example very good studies in in um cognitive science and so on that show that the more similar two things are, the longer it takes you to choose one or the other, right? And he makes exactly that point in in chess, right? The more similar two moves are, the more similar the evaluations of the resulting positions, like you're going to keep on churning in order to try to convince yourself one is better than another. But paradoxically, that's like the most wasted time of all. Um, Unless you're, of course, unless we know after the fact that it's like a critical moment and like one move one and one move lost, but most of the time, you know, you probably literally better off flipping a coin. Um, yeah. So like, don't bring a coin to the board and start flipping it, though. Like, that might annoy your that might annoy your opponent, or maybe even be against the rules. You might not be allowed to use a randomizing device uh, in chess, like you are in poker.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but but it probably would be a good idea. It's a, it's a good <laughs> point, and I, I like the cheat sheet idea too. Just like cram a few uh, practical ideas into your head before you sit down to play. Um, there were also like. I, I liked uh, when he talks about types of overlooked moves, like he gives them a name, um, like a hesitation move, a switchback, a collinear. He has his own language, I mean, or not his own language, but he, he brings these terms to the chess, bo- the chess world that are not super easy to explain on a podcast, I would say. But when you read the book, they're uh, quite useful and you, you learn to recognize them more when looking for tactics. Well, I've got to
1: mention the collinear moves because I think that's that that that's a great one. That's when, for example, a rook is opposed to another rook on an open file, and our mind is sort of drawn to the idea of capturing the other rook, um, but rarely to moving our rook closer to the opponent's rook without actually capturing it. Um, he he does say there's an exception there, like sometimes you will move a rook to a protected square, and um, maybe with the intention of establishing an outpost and then doubling the rooks behind that or something like that. Or as Maurice Ashley maybe used to say posting up or something like that <laughs> right. metaphors, right? But moving the rook to like an unprotected square on the same line is almost it's hard to generate. It's hard to even think of that as a candidate move, but he has this extremely vivid example where um, uh, Mestel could have beat I think it was Ulf Anderson maybe by by playing you know um, his rook from D8 to D2, and White's rook is on D1. you know so he puts the rook right in front of White's rook. And it, it wins the game, but it's just hanging right there. Um, and just due to the circumstances of the position, it's it's a winning move because if White takes that rook, Black will then win both of White's rooks by a couple of checks or something, and, and so on. And um, it's a very vivid example of how um, there are some moves that are hard, just hard to see. And of course, knowing that, what do we do about it? I guess you just have to see a lot of examples and be more open to the possibility there. He has a nice Fisher example also of a, a sort of a shorter um, collinear move as he as he describes it also um, yeah, great, great, great ideas there. There's actually a whole book. Like I think we could suggest, um, there's this whole book called invisible chess moves, I think, which is sort of about hard to see moves, hard to generate moves, um, and sort of training on, on that kind of thing. So maybe that's the kind of book that, um, one should look at.
0: Yeah. That rook D2 example is, is definitely, definitely a striking one. Um, I think I'd seen it somewhere, even though I had not Read this book, or maybe I had leaf through this book or something because I, I got that right away. And usually, um, usually I am not spotting the invisible gorillas in the chess positions. So, um, <laughs> um, but but yeah, lot lots of good stuff. Um, and then he's got like uh, the end game section, which I came across um, an old review of John Watson's, and he mentioned that uh, that was not his favorite section. What what did you think of it, Chris?
1: Um, well, I guess I'm maybe too much of a fanboy on this, but I really liked the endgame section in, in part because uh, there were some great examples there that um, you know probably are not things you can't find in any other endgame book, but it's nice when someone decides to give you 50 pages on the endgame and, and what he thinks are the most important things. Now, there are some things missing. For example, like the Lucina position is not in the endgame section, even though that's always thought to be like one of the most important things you're supposed to know. He does talk about the Philidor position and like how to defend against, you know, rook with Rook and Pawn against Rook, which I guess he thinks is more important, you know, or maybe anyone can look up the Lucina position. He doesn't have anything original to say about it. I think you tried to put in important endgame stuff where he feels like he can say something original or pithy that maybe is not conveyed in, um, in, in other books. Um, so, you know, he goes, he goes through some sort of subtly complex King and Pawn endgame stuff, for example, right. He doesn't go through how to win with King and Pawn versus King, right. That's, you know, um, doesn't go through um, how to play rook versus pawn, which is a sort of important, you know, kind of end game too. But he does go through a, a bunch of stuff that maybe he thinks is overlooked or underappreciated or not well understood. He even says like some grandmasters don't fully understand the most important concepts in king and pawn end games, which again makes me feel better about, you know, kind of like the grandmasters missing tactical weaknesses, right? You know, makes me feel a little bit better. Um, yeah, he has some strong advice too, which I that I think maybe. Um, uh, maybe you noticed as well as, as well as I did, um, about things to not do in the end game.
0: Yeah. Like the, uh, count the, the counting moves in a pawn race and, um, uh, like learning corresponding squares, lots of, uh, lots of things that you, you read as like strong recommendations in other books that he says basically isn't the proper way to think about it. Um, circling back to sort of the criticism about the, the endgame section. I think I come down somewhere in the middle because I mean, Watson uh, was rather tepid in his criticism as well. But I also read some some online reviews and stuff like that, and uh, I think it gets to what you're saying about like the the Lucina and the philidor. Like it, it's um mildly scattered the selection of positions. I think um, wh- what he selects, but the positions that he does select are are so um, are so instructive that. To me, it's I, I'm still happy to have it in there, but I can see how um, some people might might think it doesn't fit in that much with uh, the general framework. and And I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure exactly how the book was arranged, but uh, it it seems like it maybe wasn't all laid out like uh, on a linear path, if you know what I mean. I, I think he's really trying to like.
1: Well, if I if I try to idealize what's going on in this book, I guess I would say he's trying to be sort of relentlessly practical. So like he he looks at the kinds of positions that come up maybe that people would have trouble with. So I guess maybe he thinks that like, if you can reach rook and pawn versus rook with your king in front of your own past pawn, you can figure it out, or you've learned it already or something like that. But defending rook and pawn versus rook on the weak side, there are actually some subtleties too, like which side do you move your rook to to check the other guy's king and what file, the, you know, like it depends what file the pawn is on. And then sort of more complicated end games that uh, with rook and pawn versus rook, they do come up often, like one outside pass pawn, like a, a B pawn, and then like three versus three on the king side, right? So then he goes over, like, you know, the difference between having your rook behind the pass pawn, next to the pass pawn, or in front of the pass pawn, and sort of the winning plans then. So it's true, it does have a little bit of sort of a potpourri quality to it. Like it's not the 50 pages of the most important things you need to know about the endgame if you knew nothing to start with. Maybe it's the 50 pages of the most. Important stuff that you might not already know correctly. <laughs> you know, maybe that's maybe that's kind of the way to think about it. In that sense, it's practical. You know, in that sense, it's practical to brush up on this stuff and make sure you know it. And I'm planning on studying it more more deeply uh, after having gone through it all this time. It, maybe I should. I'd give some nice advice on. Um, you know, use your engine for playing out endgame positions to see if you can really win them when you know it's a theoretical win. So maybe I should do that with this chapter.
0: Yeah, he was well ahead of his time in terms of giving that advice. And it's something I, I, you know, on the aim chess, shout out to aim chess, uh evaluations I do. I'm always uh, below my level in converting advantages. And they're always saying practice against the engine. And I never do it. So um definitely need to make definitely need to make that happen. Um and I did want to mention in talking about the reviews, one of the ones that I read was um was um the Potter Review Blogspot website. Um shout out to uh to Dr. Potter on Twitter who uh Twitter friend of mine who wrote them and he was one of the people that wasn't as big a fan of uh, of the endgame section and I believe he was one who said that he read somewhere that it came from like an essay that he wrote and he sort of had the sense that it was cobbled together. But um, overall, I mean, he he thinks the book has merit and I think you and I are even bigger fans of it. Um, one one quote I wanted to read that he that uh, Dr. Nunn said at the beginning of the end game section is, uh, many games are decided in the end game, especially between players of comparable strength. Mastery of the end game is just as important as proficiency in the opening and middle game. Even though this truth has been repeated over and over again, the end game still remains a neglected area of chess study, especially amongst club players. Um, Can't argue with that. No, and it's again, it's also to me, it illustrates like a really,
1: the really um, objective and balanced and sensible approach and voice that Nunn has when you read any of his books. He doesn't say the end game is more important than the other phases, which some sort of dogmatic authors have said, he doesn't say the end game is unimportant. You should only study tactics or something like that. Or, you know, well, you're going to win most of your games, in the middle game. So you can put off the end game. Like no, no grandmaster would probably really say that, but he says it's equally important as the opening in the middle game. Like, well, that makes sense. But, you know, hearing, you know, hearing such a great player point that out is I think still, um, you know, still helpful. It's, I thought he made the you know I thought his endgame chapter you know well by the way I guess I'm such a fan of this book I couldn't even bear to look up any reviews lest my <laughs> my idols be you know desecrated or whatever but um uh, he has some interesting positions in there that make the endgame seem more interesting in a way yeah. my favorite my favorite example in the book was from the endgame chapter um, and it's um it's this endgame of um uh, it's like rook and seven pawns versus rook and seven pawns I think it's an Ulf Anderson win against someone I can't remember who. Um, where there's no advantage other than black has a backward pawn. There's not even a difference in pawn islands. Both sides have two big pawn islands since they each have seven pawns. Um, and black has a backward pawn with a hole in front of it, but but white just has a rook. So it's not like you have a knight you can put in that hole or anything like that. And yet somehow Anderson manages to weave together this lovely strategic plan. And it's a contemporary example. It's not like Capablanca beating some, you know, amateur or mere master or something. It's two grandmasters and, and Anderson manages to win. And I I actually sort of from Nunn's explanation, I thought maybe I could do this in an actual game, you know, right. you know whether I could or not, I guess I should play it out against the engine. Maybe it's not really a win, you know, that often you put pressure on the defender, the defender, you know, starts making mistakes, you know, but that's chess, right?
0: Yeah, that, that struck a chord with me too. And then he also, he does like his own playing against the engine, seven pawns against seven pawns in some position. Yeah. And, and I like how he breaks it down into steps and makes it um, more digestible, if not uh, easily mimicable, um, and there are some cool positions there. So yeah, I mean, I'm. I, it's not my least favorite section. Put it like that, and and the book, the book overall um, is uh, just so much, so much good stuff in there. Um, he has some good advice on fighting losing positions uh, that I wanted to share a quote about um, because this one, as you said, I agree with you by the way that um, it's hard like the book is deep enough that it's it's hard to um it's hard to summarize on a podcast a lot of the sort of improvement advice but i did think that this quote is a nice little takeaway which is he says in fighting losing positions there are two basic strategies when <clears throat> excuse me two basic strategies when confronted with a bad position the first is to find some way to hang on often by liquidating to an end game the attacker may not fancy winning a long end game or pawn up so they may unwisely continue to seek a middle game win even if he does go for the end game a sudden switch from tactical middle game play to technical end game play can prove disorienting he he says we call this the grim defense response the second strategy is to seek to gain the m- initiative even at material cost hoping to stir up complications and cause the opponent to go wrong we call this the create confusion response and then he goes through different examples of the uh, grim defense and create confusion responses and i think it's helpful to have that sort of framework because when I play, I mean, I haven't, of course, played any tournaments lately, but I feel like I don't have, I often lack the sort of big picture vision of like, what it is I'm trying to even achieve. I'm just looking at moves. So it was nice to have those examples. Yeah,
1: I think that's, that's a good, there are conceptual frameworks in this book, sort of for thinking about different parts of the game that I, you know, you don't really find elsewhere. I mean, of course, when you think about it, like defending solidly and passively versus seeking counter chances, like that distinction is, has been made before. And it even has been said, it was a weakness of Kasparov's that he was not good at passive defense. He would always seek counter chances. And sometimes that's not the best approach in some positions, like the the game he lost to um, Anand in the world championship match. Um, Maybe he could have held, you know, with grim defense, but I really like that he calls it grim defense. And to me, it illustrates why there are so few books on defense. Like if grim is the adjective that goes along with the word defense, you know, who wants to write a book on the grimmest part of chess, you know, or something? Chess can already seem kind of grim, you know, in certain circumstances, um, you know, depending on how you've been playing lately. Um, but he really does, I think, give some good examples of that. And it definitely rings true that you can become um, frustrated in trying to win against a grim defense. Uh, and this is one of the, you know, there are not many books on defense. This, this, this only has like 10 pages on it, you know, but they're, but they're great. You know, I I think they're great pages with good examples, um, as, as always.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. And the one section that I didn't, that I didn't like that, as I just alluded to was the, uh, the book reviews thrown in, thrown in at the end. Was that in the version that you have? Because I'm, I think that was added in the second edition.
1: I have the second edition. I, I mistakenly, um, I've pruned my book collection many times and sometimes I get rid of old editions of books that have, that have new editions. So I, I, I can't compare, but it is in my second edition, um, you know, paperback, uh, copy, um, as well as the, uh, the gambit chess app, which is the exact same thing almost as forward chess, except for all the gambit books. And, um, I, I, you know, I used to edit a chess journal and I used to write book reviews. I still do sometimes and so on, although not of technical chess books. So, I really appreciate a good review and a reviewer who's willing to actually point out the mistakes that people make. Um, and uh, of course, nobody likes having their own mistakes pointed out, but he makes a lot of um, good points about chess literature in that, in that chapter. I'm not sure how practical they are. Yeah. You know, maybe one of the less practical parts of the book, except in, in to the extent that it's a very important practical skill to like find good chess literature and good sources. And he does make the point that there's a vast range of quality of chess books, or at least there was in 1998 and 2008. Maybe engine checking, and you know all the great publishers now are getting a little better. But I think he's absolutely correct that even let's say a corrected edition of Basic Chess Endings, um, you know, wasn't really up to snuff. You know when it came out, like they a lot of errors were carried over. You know that enough, not enough was done to really. Um, you know, bring the book into the 21st century. Let's say that's one of the books he, he critiques in the in the book reviews section. But I'm not sure, sort of, really, what the general lessons are there. You know, it's kind of yeah. hard to know, like, whether you're getting a good book or a bad book unless you're yourself a GM or an expert on the topic.
0: Yeah. So Ruben finds Basic Chess Endings, and then um, Michael De La Maza's Rapid Chess Improvement, which, of course, Neil Bruce and I um, also discussed, are the the two main books that he reviews. Yeah. And the, there is this sort of cobbled together sense. But <laughs> I think in that section in particular, um, it, it's it seems a little out of place. And and he, he really kind of takes a hatchet to uh, De La Maza's uh, Rapid Chess Improvement. I think most of his criticisms are quite valid. Um, so I don't have an objection to the criticisms in that respect. It was more just like, uh, you know, it kind of put me in a different frame of mind than just like enjoying reading this chess book, feeling like I'm improving. And then all of a sudden, there's just like this takedown. Um, whether whether the takedown was deserved or not, it still felt a little out of place to me.
1: Well, if you want to keep improving, don't read the books that he wrote. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's the practical aspect. But I, I sort of I've never been able to get through that that um, rapid chess improvement book myself. And I, I think Nun's one of Nunn's points that he makes, which is kind of self serving, but he's not afraid to criticize himself at, at times too. Is you know if if you read a book of advice on how to improve at chess or how to think about chess or whatever, and it's written by an amateur. I mean, no offense, but, you know, the, it, it you know, the um, argument from authority is sort of considered like an invalid logical argument, like just because someone's an authority or a leader or whatever doesn't mean they're right. But the argument for amateurism is even worse, um, you know, so so none would say, like, if a grandmaster has written a book telling you how to improve at chess, it makes more sense that you should follow his advice because he his or her advice, because they actually did get up to grandmaster, whereas someone who got to 2100, um, you know, what, what are we to make of? of that. And then there's all the usual cause and effect, you know, stuff, which, which none sort of does a good, you know, makes a good point out of, out of too. like, you know, if you, you're going to improve rapidly, usually, like when you, you know, when you work on chess, doing pretty much anything, you know, pretty intensely, like, so how do you know that what this particular guy did is really, you know, the best thing to do? I I, I suspect you covered all of this and, you know, in the previous uh, podcast on this, but it's nice to see, you know, sort of uh, none lay it out too.
0: Yeah, we were probably a little bit gentler than, than none was. He really um, had a bad day when he wrote
1: that section. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, but, a uh, day. Maybe, maybe a good day. Maybe he was very excited about that. He doesn't seem to pull his punches too much, even even on Gambit book authors. Like He, he said, I don't understand why Rousen, Rousen recommended this, so I went and bought it. You know, and boy, that I, I, was really not good, you know, but he never, you know, he never comes back and asks Rousen, why did you recommend this book, you know?
0: Yeah. And and speaking of what you mentioned about um, his, his critique of cl- cl- club players writing improvement books, he does, he quotes um, his uh, British compatriot, Matthew Sadler, um criticizing a book that a 2300 an opening book that a 2300 player had written and he actually stands up for the the 2300 player in that case because he said look you know if if you're doing like a you know exact opening and you've put in the work like it is possible that and it's aimed for you know a lower rated audience he basically says that's fine so it's not like a categorical elitism or complete elitism it's a uh, contextual which i certainly you know um, I, I don't object to that. I mean, grandmasters are the ultimate authorities short of engines these days. I, I would say maybe, that I,
1: I, I think he's right about opening books, although of course I'm not as much of an expert as him, but maybe the difference, another difference that he doesn't really mention enough, but it's, I think it, it happens more nowadays is that there's some, there are many more people now who are not necessarily grandmasters or top grandmasters, but they really specialize in training and coaching and having seen so many students, um, you know, even if they're only like a 2300 player themselves or whatever, but, or, but having coached so many students, they have probably learned things about what helps people improve and what are the pathologies of improvement and so on that grandmasters wouldn't necessarily know because, you know, they just have their own experience. You know, if they're, if they're not a trainer, right, they just have their own experience. And since they're grandmasters, things probably came a little easier to them than they do to the average player and so on. So I would say like a top trainer is maybe, you know, just as credible an authority as someone much higher rated, but who's not a trainer or, you know, or a coach or whatever. Uh, but that doesn't mean sort of like, you know, that's different from like a 2100 player who has only the example of himself mainly to, you know, to, to go by. That's sort of more of like an anecdote rather than a, you know, than, than a, than a theory or a, uh, you know, or evidence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. it it it's a good point. I mean, and these days, of course, everything's been thrown into the, like, the engines are so strong that it's kind of um, it's, kind of rearranged everything in terms of how you could typically judge something because like if a you know 2100 player or whatever is going to write a book like they may not do the best job explaining concepts but they're not going to make the um analytical errors that they would have in the old days if they're doing their their due diligence with the engine by their side
1: i i think there are some like relatively low rated players at least over the board who write really good opening books and the name that comes to mind is is Nikolaus Naturlis. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but he's written a number of quality chess opening books that I keep going back to over and over again. And I think he's a correspondence player who, and correspondence players are some of like the pros at understanding how to use engines and how to interpret, you know, when they're right and when they're wrong, you know, and which engines to pay attention to and so on. And he's like really super at it. And I don't know what, I don't even know if he's 2000 over the board, you know, maybe 2200, I don't know. But uh, I, I think he's definitely right that openings are an area where you can achieve like, you know, a lot of, Expertise and ability to write well without necessarily being a grandmaster yourself.
0: Yeah, and obviously that's more true now than than when he he wrote it Um, And speaking of engines, I mean the the section about engines uh, I I found it uh, Interesting from an intellectual perspective, but less practical than it probably was in in 2008 or whatever it might have been but I enjoyed his um his enthusiasm for engine tournaments so he he like he likes to pit the engines against each other in various situations to sort of find out more truth about a position or get a sense of what what engine uh, handles something better. And obviously, he's had a longstanding interest in sort of uh, chess and AI. So I would love to see like even though that section itself was update, uh outdated, I would love to see like an updated version of uh, John Nunn's like thoughts about like ah uh, engine his own personal engine competitions.
1: I I liked that section quite a bit and I'd forgotten about engine tournaments. I'm only reminded of it when I read this book Um, and it doesn't seem to have caught on as much as maybe it should. But the, the point of it was that often there's a position where engines disagree or where the engine's conclusion doesn't seem to make much sense to humans because the engines are suggesting weird moves or something like that. So he gives an example of where Black sacrifices a rook for two pawns and a kingside attack, but then the position sort of quiets down a little bit. And, you know, it's one of those sort of very unclear positions where the question is, like, can Black develop the attack before White can defend? And it could be many, many moves off, right? So just one ordinary engine evaluation is, is not going to necessarily tell you what the outcome is. And the point of the engine tournament is sort of um, not necessarily just to see which engine does best or whatever, but to sort of see what would be likely to happen in a human game. So if the evaluation is, you know, 0.3, but Black wins 80% of the engine games... That sort of suggests that in a practical sense, there's more scope for white to go wrong, you know, than than for black. And maybe white can hold it, you know, with perfect play, right? But black has more chances to win. The corresponding equivalent nowadays is Monte Carlo Tree Search and engines like Leela, mm-hmm. where, you know, that kind of play out concept is built into the way they evaluate positions. And so they will tell you something like, you know, this is a 62% winning chance, you know, whereas that one is a 70% or something like that. But I think there's still room for for engine tournaments to 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 happen because still some of the engines come up with quite different in certain positions some of the engines disagree quite a bit um so then it can be interesting you know to play them out especially at fast time controls maybe so you can play a lot of games like monte carlo at yourself you know
0: yeah yeah Leela and stockfish don't they don't they don't see eye to eye on a lot of things so <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah even though stockfish now is sort of like absorbed some of Leela's biological uniqueness as like the borg you know um uh, but still, yeah, there are some positions where you get a disagreement. And, um, uh, you know, I also like fast engine games are kind of interesting from a human point of view, because when you don't give the engines a lot of time, right, they sort of make more mistakes, but maybe um, in ways that um, suggest interesting lines for humans where, you know, humans might not be able to necessarily play that well um, either. So the engine, but yeah, the whole engine chapter, by the way, is really interesting because it's like a time capsule of like the top engines yeah. are uh, and you know there's no stockfish there's no Leela, there's no komodo um there's there's none of that um but uh uh but still like some of the things he mentions are still happening today like there's still some positions where it takes some engine surprisingly long period of time to figure out what's going on um and and he one thing he says to do is um play the first move of the combination I- and then see what happens because sometimes just entering one move will sort of you know, reprioritize the the you know the candidate moves from the engine's point of view. So now it sort of catches on to the right line. You know, within you know a few seconds or you know or a minute, whereas before it before it didn't. So some of the advice I think is still even practically valid.
0: Yeah, I've definitely had that experience where like you're you're checking you're checking an answer or something and it doesn't get it, but then you put the move and it immediately knows it's right. Um, All right, Chris, so we need to wrap up. But first, we're going to take one more break and hear from our friends at Chess Mood. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by ChessMood.com. Here is what Chess Mood offers. It is a subscription-based website that provides a comprehensive opening repertoires, both for white and for black. They also have middle game and end game videos from their cast of professional Grandmaster trainers. They also have some free content that you can check out. Grandmaster Avchek Gregorian, who's their founder, and you can hear on episode 192 of Perpetual Chess, has a blog where he writes about common challenges for tournament players that you can check out for free. And they also started offering free YouTube videos called daily lessons with the grandmaster. So go to their website, check out what they have to offer and be sure to subscribe to their YouTube as well. And let's get back to the interview. So we are back and ready to wrap up. So I guess Chris in summation, we just say uh two thumbs up, right? Is there, is there anything more to, uh, to summarize? Uh,
1: I don't know if I want to summarize much more, but um, yes, two thumbs up. Um, There are a couple of other points about um, secrets of practical chess that, that I especially liked. Um, It's one is it's very well-written and concise. And to the point it's, it's, it's written in a practical voice as well. Like there's no philosophy in this book. It's relentlessly practical. Um, It sort of assumes that we're interested in winning chess games and, you know, it's all advice on on how to do that. It's There's not much aesthetic advice, how to enjoy chess more. No, it's really advice on on winning, but, but purely by making good moves, right? There's no sort of like offbeat weird psychology or anything, you know, that kind of stuff in here. Um, the examples are beautifully chosen. I think in most cases, he has just the right amount of analysis. He doesn't indulge in like a lot of analysis for the sake of analysis. There's only one place in the book where he does that, where he's trying to show us, how deep grandmaster opening analysis ought to be, where he goes into the poison Pawn variation of the Sicilian to 30 moves or something like that. I have to admit, I didn't play through that. Uh, (laughs) But uh, he contrasted with an example of sort of learning an opening, which is much more strategic and conceptual in nature, also in the Sicilian defense though, which was kind of interesting. And I think there are a lot of, I learned a lot about one of my own openings just by reading his 12 year old, you know, analysis um, uh, of it. Um, He's, He's willing to criticize books by his own authors so he points out like a bad mistake made by one of his own authors and analyzing a in, in analyzing a a position in another book and there are a lot the other the final thing I want to say is there are a lot of like Easter eggs you know throughout this book of of little nuggets of fact that you didn't necessarily know about like he in an aside in annotating um, a game he says well this in this case white wins two pawns and has three connected past pawns on the king side. But in the queen endings, one, um, one uh, you know, advanced past pawn can be worth, you know, several other pawns can be worth as much as several other pawns. And I hadn't sort of thought about this. It's like a queen and a D pawn, you know, and then there's like a queen and a FG and H pawns, you know, but the D pawn is sort of advanced a little more. And in queen and pawn end games, you know, like counting the pawns doesn't really matter because, the queen can sort of force through, you know, a passed pond by itself. And if that can happen, then it sort of doesn't matter. There are a lot of examples um, like that of little nuggets of, um, of information um, that you can, you can pick up and, and, and write down that you might not have thought of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of good stuff. Uh, I will definitely be returning to this book, try to catch up with you since you've, you've read it three times and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and what you say about uh it being quite practical and sort of uh concise i that that does uh to bring it back to zaitsev it, it is um a, a nice contrast to to the zaitsev book um so uh each have their place in the chess world but uh but if you're getting ready for a tournament um i would definitely prefer the nun book but if you're just looking for some philosophical chess bedtime reading then maybe zaitsev is for you um yeah. I don't know about bedtime reading, but
1: I really do think Dvoretsky might be right. Like if you need to sort of like think differently, you know, if you feel like you need to think differently or, you know, be exposed to the kind of thing you wouldn't normally see in your usual chess sources or whatever. And you want to learn something about a great, you know, a great player who most people don't know much about. You definitely read the Zaitsev book. Just sort of try to, you know, try to get through it, even though the language is a bit weird sometimes.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, a good, a good note to end on with the books, but Chris, before we let you go, anything else new in your chess household, whether it be with, uh, with your son or books that you're reading or anything else?
1: Uh, well, let's see with, with my son where he's been playing a lot. Um, lately I'm sort of back to, to giving him lessons myself, like, uh, and, um, kind of interesting because like occasionally he'll point at the engine and say but but the engine agrees with me you know and i'll be trying to explain how well you might want to consider this move also or maybe this is like way to think about the position or something like that so he's definitely in the phase of using the engine as a weapon against his father in argument (laughs) um, you know which is probably one of the stages of development of the young chess player or something like that you know um and i think i've even heard coaches talk about that like you know they sometimes hate when the students turn the engine on during the lesson right because it just sort of can can get in the way sometimes of thinking conceptually about what's going on, you know, and 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 pragmatically and making a more general point or something like that. Um so yeah, he's, he's still working on it. I'm working on it. I'm really looking forward to getting back to the over the board game because like Rawson said, I think in one of in one of his in one of his books, like over the board chess, we get to really like escape into sort of pure thought for like five hours in a row. And it's like yeah. the experience there is that really lets you do that. Like it's I was just thinking today, the only time I've ever turned off my phone for five consecutive hours is during an over the board chess tournament because you have to. Yeah. Uh, What a blessing, you know, to be able to do that every so often, you know, and, and, uh, and forget about everything else. So I'm I'm looking forward to that and, and uh, seeing whether I've learned anything in the last 12 months.
0: Yeah. Not only do you, is it the only place where you turn it off, but it's immersive enough where often you don't think about it. Whereas if whereas if I leave my phone in the other room for two minutes during the day, it's like I'm like shaking, you know, <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> doesn't doesn't speak highly of me, but it's the truth. But uh, you can you can pull it off at a chess tournament somehow. So for for any listeners who've made it this far and still haven't played a tournament, that's an, yet another reason that uh that you guys should try one once uh once it's finally safe. Yeah, you don't have
1: to start with a 5-hour game either, like play in a tournament with like an hour long game or something. Start with it start with an hour of no phone, you know, and then see if you can move up to 2 and 3 and uh, but I I I I really is, I often thought that chess players would have an advantage in poker because they can actually pay attention for long stretches of time whereas poker players stereotypically you would think would have a lot of trouble with that and the casino doesn't really promote that, but and I now think also that um uh chess players like older players might have a little bit of an advantage over the board compared to the kids because the older players I think might be able to concentrate for longer. Um, and also I think players who've been playing chess for a long time over the board might have a little bit of advantage against newer players who've learned mostly like online, you know, on screens and so on. When it comes to sitting down at the board, they might have a little more stamina for that experience. And um, I think we talked about this maybe before, but I'm, I'm always surprised that there are some people who are rated so much higher online than over the board. And I think maybe it is truly because, um, it's hard for them to concentrate a little bit like at the board without being able to look around at you know, at other stuff and, um, and, and so on. So maybe I'll have a little bit of uh this is maybe I'm just trying to, you know, deceive myself into thinking this. Maybe we'll have a little bit of an edge when we get back to over the board compared to,
0: compared to online. Uh, we we need whatever we can get. Uh, exactly. as we yes. To get older. Um, <laughs> and and uh, just, just like two more things, Chris. So any, any standout discoveries in your recent chess studies? I know you're, Always reading new books um what's what's your regimen been like of late uh well i i've been i discovered uh I discovered a couple of old books like um you
1: know I always knew that Laszlo polgar had written that big thick paperback book that you can find in all the bookstores and everything five thousand positions, but most of them are made in one or something like that you know, so I was never really that interested in it but then I discovered that he's he's he wrote like two even bigger books. Of middle game and end game positions. And they're full of interesting stuff, like the middle game book. I don't know if you've ever seen these things, but they're they're kind of like encyclopedia of chess openings or chess middle games volumes. They've got almost no text. And what text there is, it's in like six different languages, like Russian, Hungarian, English, oh, wow. and, and so on. And um, they're grouped by theme. And he's got themes in there that you don't see in any other books. Like he has, um, you know, um, he has like a whole section of positional queen sacrifices or something like that. Like when did you ever see a collection of positional queen sacrifices before? Um, And he has a whole, you know, a a section of like rook, you know, like trapping rooks or something like that. I mean, it's it's like these, plus all the usual ones, like discovered attack, you know, and, and all the, you know, all the usual ones, but also many like positional themes, like pawn breakthroughs, you know, or something like that, or, um, you know, outposts. So it's a really like I think it would be a great resource if I were if I were like a full time coach or teacher, especially of um, and the positions are at all kinds of levels. So there's some easy ones and then and then some hard ones. So probably slightly more geared for advanced players. But these are like these are hardcover books that are out of print. I think they came out in Hungary in like the 90s or something like that. Um, but I found a guy in Europe and um, bought bought them from him and uh, you know had to put up with the slow U.S. mail delivery during COVID um, to get yeah. them all the way over from Italy. You know, but. It's the kind of stuff that like someone who you know is into chess books, you know, might be, um, might be interested in. But there's there's so much good stuff coming out now. Like I'm really looking forward to some of the the quality chess books that are coming out. Like um, like Jan Marcos wrote that book called Under the Surface, which won some awards, and I really liked it. It's kind of like also a book of chess essays, but more practical than than um, more practical than uh, than Zaitsev. But now he's got a new book coming out with David Navara.
0: Yeah, uh, I saw well, that.
1: David Navarro that I think you know, like, has got to be very interesting, and and um, they've got a Michael Adams book coming out too. I would love to see hear what Michael Adams thinks about, you know, how to play how to play chess and and how you know his his greatest games and so on. And Short is coming out with a book too. You know, there's all kinds of stuff. Everybody's got time to write books now. It's great.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. We just got to find the time to read them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um. So good stuff. So, Chris, I forgot to ask you in advance, but I believe last time you were on, we made a small donation uh, to, um, to Michael Regan's uh, chess in uh, the D.C. area. Michael, who, tournament director, who, of course, has been on the podcast. Um, do you want to do that again or do you want to get back to me later? I didn't, uh, didn't prep you for this. I, I didn't think about it either, but, you know, he has not been like
1: it, he runs these tournaments with increment time controls, which I really like. And I did notice that after he had been doing it for a while, some other organizers have started doing it too. So like the US tournament over the board tournament scene, such as it was before March of last year, has I think been gradually shifting, at least in time control wise, towards um what's easier for us old people to deal with, like having a 30 second increment. Um, but I don't think he's run any tournaments in the last year. So I wanna like support him and try to make sure that he gets back to running tournaments because I love his tournaments. So I will I will do it again this time. Okay. Um, as a donation to his, I think it's to the Washington international, which is like yeah. his flagship tournament, which I hope to play in some year, but even if I don't get to play in it, you know, I think it would be great if that keeps on happening.
0: Okay. Excellent. So we'll make that happen. And thanks as always, Chris, uh, your help is always appreciated and uh, always good to catch up.
1: Same here. I, I, the, I love talking about this stuff and uh, hope we can do it again. Sometime I'll try to find a more suitable book than um, you know, than, than the one that I initially picked this time, but I think, I think we rescued it. Okay. In the end with uh with a save.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I think uh, listeners will have gotten something out, out of this. And listeners were gonna say goodbye to Chris. But if you want to tackle a couple of blindfold puzzles, I I will uh add them onto this. So um so thanks again and uh good night, Chris. Thanks. See you next time. Hey, guys, we are back with a couple blindfold puzzles for you. These are going to be from the beginning of the game. The first one is the OG chess player Giovanni Del Greco playing his old nemesis NN. Not known, no name, whoever it was. He played him a lot or her. So what I'm going to do is read the moves in order. And then if you would like to see it, it written, you can check it in the show notes. And then there'll be a link to a diagram with the answer. So Greco's playing white. Here we go. D4. Black plays D5. C4. D takes C4. E3. B5. A4. C6. A takes B5. C takes B5. What move did Greco then play to make his opponent resign? And I'll read the moves again a little bit faster this time. D4, D5. C4, D takes C4. E3, B5. A4, C6. A takes B5. C takes B5. And it's white to move and win. And that's it for number one. Number two is on opening trap. Let's see if you all can get this. d4, knight f6. c4, e5. d takes e5, knight to e4. Knight f3, d6. e takes d6, bishop takes d6, g3 question mark question mark and now it is black to play and win material i'll read you the sequence again this one's a bit harder than the first it's not just one move as it was in the first d4 knight f6 c4 e5 d takes e5 knight e4 knight f3 d6 e takes d6 bishop takes d6 g3 and now it is black to play and win material thanks for listening everyone i will catch you all soon big shout out to matthew passy my producer been helping us for over four years much appreciated as always i also would like to thank everyone who helped spread the word about the show whether it be by word of mouth or a positive review review on a podcast platform i can't even keep track of all the platforms anymore but every review is appreciated i also wanted to remind you guys you are always welcome to Follow me or Perpetual Chess on social media, on Twitter. I'm at Beneficial1. That's where I'm most active. We also have the Perpetual Chess Facebook group where we post every episode, and sometimes the guests chime in to continue the conversation. The Perpetual Chess Instagram page is unretired. Follow us at Perpetual Chess where we post weekly clips. If you would like to email me, the easiest way is ben at perpetualchesspod.com also of course want to thank our sponsors chessable.com and chess aim and chess thanks for helping the cause guys much appreciated and great products that i'm proud to be affiliated with last but not least of course i want to thank all of our patreon and paypal supporters i would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities chessable.com David Lazarus of lasmanchess.com, quality chess books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Abysmal Depths of Chess blog, Adapter Interactive Web Designs and Services, the Apprentice Twitch channel. Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Aniti Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Charlotte Chess Center, the Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Ewan Richardson, Farhan Thawar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harst, I am Greg Shahadi, Gregory Galuk, Guvin Manet, James Holyhead, James Kennedy, Jeff Martinson, Jens Green, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan. King Cell, the King's Crusher YouTube channel, one of the OGs of Chess YouTube, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerdnays Twitch channel, Peter Sodi, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, Reverend Roy Fry, Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Steven Martinez, Sven Giersen, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tuchenko, Todd Bryant of Strongchess.com, Todd Kennedy, The Vintage Patzers, which is a chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, William Hogarth, and I also would like to thank Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alan and Maggie Sue, Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod. Barry Hessian Bill Juniper Bill Moran Brad and Andy Rosen Brett Howard Lynn Brian Chase Brian Mullis Bruce Scott Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess Chad Hilton, Chess Pats Her Spain, I'm not sure if that one's a real name, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabrie, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Corey Budson, Costa Caras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskacek, David Brown, David Hamblin, David Cramley of chessable.com, Daylin Shelton, Dennis Parrish, Dirk Durker, FM Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Emmanuel langois Robitai, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah Cat, Ian Mason, Indrek Ryland, Felipe Melo Pereira, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letart Lavois, Dr. Frank Tortoros, Frank Zanonis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vanderveld, Gene Stewart, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Han Schrute, Harish Renivasan, Howard Vihan, Jacob Kovach, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Perry, James Aspinwall, James Bonastia, James Muir, Jason Willem, J.D. Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, Joe Valdez, Joel Thomas Ramos, John Tully, Juan Almagar, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, Jeff Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joe Rocky, John Thompson, Josh Friedel, Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, Kior of the Lakeshore Chess Club, I am Kosty of the Chess Dojo, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Ryforth, Laura Boyowski, Macaulay Peterson, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco, Matthias Plock, Mechanics Institute of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gabell, Nate Sollen, Neil Bruce, Nickma Malajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, G.M. Pascal Charbonneau, Pasi Pasanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahava, Richard Hallenbach, Robert Tichy, Robert Turner, Rory Coleman, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwalder, Seth Ruzica, Shane Unger, Silver Knights Enrichment, Stefan Roller, WGM, Tatyav Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikrumar, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and Zhivko Storyanov. Thanks, as always, for the support, everyone. I will catch you guys all next week.